Even in New Testament times, when you look into the books, for example, Colossians, you will find that false teachers had crept into the very first churches. You may recall the words that one of the Bible authors has given, evil men crept in unawares. And that was happening way back in the New Testament time. But if we keep going for another 1,500 years in the time that followed the New Testament, we find that the light of gospel truth had on occasions almost been extinguished by the creeping in of superstition and man-made tradition and persecution as well. And if there was anything being attempted then, it was with the minions of the devil trying to get out. God's Word from circulation. The Roman Catholic Church dominated Europe at that particular time, and it claimed that forgiveness of sins could be achieved through doing good works or could be bought by handing over money into the coffers of the church. There were people who protested that, and some of those protesting voices were raising their tongue against that false teaching. One of those was a former priest and a scholar, Jan Hus, who was accused of heresy by a church council in 1415. And then they took him out and they burned him at the stake in the southern German town of Constance. At the same time, Islam was spreading rapidly right through Europe. By 1510, the Islamic Ottoman Empire had taken over most of the Middle East advanced in through the Balkan region as well. In fact, by the year 1529, they led siege to Vienna, right on the doorstep of Germany. So Europe here is in the middle of an international crisis allied to a spiritual crisis as well. And very few people would ever have been able to predict that it would be down to one obscure monk by the name of Martin Luther, who, by the way, was locked in a personal crisis of his very own, but he was going to do something that ultimately would result in changing the world. Martin Luther was struggling to make himself right with God by his own good works. So he entered the monastery in Erfurt in Germany, and there he said prayers, and he fasted for days on end, and he put his body through all kinds of physical and mental torture. They had to bring him in on one occasion at least, and virtually get him de-iced. He had been lying out there on the frozen slabs on a very icy night, and all of that was in an effort to be holy and acceptable to God. And he thought, if I keep working and working and working and doing all of these penances and putting myself through all of these religious rings, then God will be favorable towards me. To anybody else, he appeared to be the holiest monk in that monastery. But in his heart, as he looked inside, all he could see was blackness and sinfulness. His good works all of the ceremonies that the church insisted upon could not and did not bring relief to Martin Luther's troubled soul. Luther understood. The Holy Spirit demanded a perfect righteousness, not a 10% or a 50% or a 90% righteousness, but 100% total perfection. And he realized, I 
cannot be righteous before God by my own actions. So in autumn of 1515, in the tower of the monastery in Wittenberg, he's meditating upon the early chapters of Romans. And he suddenly realized, as he was reading that passage, do you know what? The perfect righteousness that God requires will never be found at the end of a line of good works that I do. It can only be found through faith in the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel dawned upon Martin Luther. And he read the words that we have in Romans 1 and verse 17, and he understood from that, the just shall live by faith. His own testimony was, I was seized by the conviction that I must understand Paul's letter to the Romans. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now that discovery opened up Luther's mind to the grand theme of the entire Bible. That theme is that there is a law of God that condemns us because that law holds up a perfect standard. It demands perfection. But then on the other side, Thank God he discovered for the grace of God revealed through the gospel which brings us the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied by his life and by his death the demands of the law on our behalf. Which is why he then made such a determined effort to get a copy of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the book that liberated him, that freed his soul, that made him right with God. He wanted to get a copy of that Bible into the hands of as many people as he possibly could. So when I was thinking of a theme to take on what is a Reformation Sunday evening, I thought there could be no better one. In the year of the 500th anniversary of the translation of the New Testament into German by Martin Luther, no better theme than this, Martin Luther and his German Bible. First thing that we're going to look at tonight is the preparation for the Word. The preparation for the Word, a path the people could walk. There would have been no German Bible apart from a couple of things, foundational issues they are, and one of them would have been the conversion of Martin Luther himself, and then the compassion that he had for the people around him who were perishing in their ignorance, and he wanted to get the copy of the Bible into their hands and into their hearts. Now, God opened other doors for him. We're calling them facilitators. In the centuries leading up to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the Bible was essentially a closed book for the majority of people in various countries. Books in general were rare and expensive. Most of the people couldn't read and they couldn't write, so illiteracy was high. And church services 
As well as most of these books, including the Bible, the church services, they were in Latin, and the people are sitting there, and they don't know Latin, and only the elite clergy can understand, and the people don't have a clue. And so the Protestant Reformation in Europe had to break through these barriers and get back to the Bible. Three huge developments these facilitators helped with that. And those facilitators were one of the slogans of the day in the secular realm as well as in the spiritual realm. If you'd have been in the secular and looking for the Renaissance then, and you'll get that in your history class, the spread of learning throughout Europe, that Renaissance was highly applauded and lauded back then. They were talking about this particular motto. And again, in the Reformation in the church, we had the revival of true religion occurring there. And they were both secular and spiritual, leaning back on the one phrase. It was a Latin phrase, ad fontes, and it meant simply back to the sources. Meaning if you're examining any document, then what you need to do is to check back, 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 back to the original first copies of that document, get back to the sources. And so for Martin Luther, that meant, as he's studying here, what he needs to get away from is that Latin Bible that he knew to be full of inaccuracies and get away back to the original Hebrew Old Testament and to the Greek documents for the original New Testament. He was greatly helped in this by a man called Erasmus, because in 1516, this Greek scholar Erasmus produced the first Greek New Testament in print, and that would be a thunderously good development as far as the Reformation was concerned. Here now, Luther is able to take this volume, and he's able to get back to the Greek sources, and he's able to study the Bible at this deeper level, and he understands right away that the established church has corrupted the message and withheld the good news from the people. And so six years later, With his copy of Erasmus, Greek New Testament, in his hand, he set about translating the New Testament into his own language, the German language, and then with William Tyndale from England, and he comes and he goes to see him, gets hold of the Greek New Testament, and brings a Bible into English. A third facilitator and great helper here was the invention of the printing press. That was invented 1439. Can't overstate the importance or value of that because it opened the door to the spread of this learning. If you're doing hand copies, going to take a long time to produce all of those hand copies and you'll not do it in the way that you can do when printing is there and these copies are going in their multitudes off the printing presses and so the new ideas of the Reformation, the old truths of course that are now newly held, they made those truths go out and the Bible became widely available. Luther called the coming of the printing press God's highest an extremist act of grace, whereby the business of the gospel is driven forward. Do you know what's happening here? God's hand is seen controlling all the events of history. 
And sometimes we think and we look around us, even listen to the news today, and you imagine this old world of ours, it's in a state of total chaos. Everything is disorganized and falling apart and imploding on itself and it's total disaster. But God is the architect of all of history. And bring that down into your own personal life. Maybe you think the walls are folding in and the roof is crumbling down on top of you and you can't see a way out. There is a God of providence and a God of grace. And to Him we need to look and to Him we need to pray, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Let me see things from a better, fuller, more focused perspective so that not through my eyes but through thine eyes I can see that everything is under control. And it was here. The preparation for the Word. But then secondly we have the production of the Word in the form of a Bible that the people could read. Luther became, we'll not go into the details of it, but became a fugitive for a time in the Wartburg Castle. Up the hill from Eisenach in Germany, he was condemned by the church. He was outlawed by the state. People were baying for his blood. The church authorities wanted to get rid of him. But here in seclusion, in one of the rooms in this castle, Luther began the task of translating the New Testament out of the original Greek into the daily German language of the ordinary people. Now, he was looking for accuracy. Of course, he was determined to make sure that his Bible was a strict interpretation of what God had revealed. But he also was careful to think of how it would sound when the German ear would pick it up that it would sound well in their ears. Luther wanted the words of Jesus and the evangelists and the apostles to be heard at the pace and in the rhythm of everyday speech. So it would appeal to the ears of the listeners. It would lodge in their memory. It would, as he said, warm their heart for Christ. So how did he do that? Well, it's rather fascinating. He went into, for example, the local butchers. And he watched him as he carved up sheep, studied their entrails. Why would he do that? So that he could understand the sacrifices of the Mosaic law that are detailed in the Bible and would better realize all that was being talked about there. When he started to read about the precious stones in the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, what did he do? He knew that the elector of Saxony, his own protector, had an extensive collection of gems. And he asked, well, I would need this one because the Bible talks about a a sapphire and a sardonyx and everything else. He got those stones all delivered and he examined them just to give himself a better run at the teaching of God's word on that issue. He was so keen for accuracy. He went to these lengths. And he ensured that the plowman and the weaver would understand the Bible when they would sit down to read it. And do you know what? Luther succeeded. One of his opponents actually complained that even the tailors and the shoemakers are reading it 
with great eagerness. He said it was the speech of the mother at home, the speech of the children in the street, the men and women in the market, the butcher, the man he had visited, and various tradesmen in their shops. And he spent dedicated hours in translating out of the Greek into the German language this text, that the first draft of the New Testament was completed in 11 weeks. That was phenomenal. December 1521 through to February 1522. And it should be noted that just as well our clocks have changed so it's darker tonight, earlier, and I think we've all noted that in a way in tonight, but Luther's contending with darkened days, with poor lighting, with his own generally poor health. And yet with the help of a friend, Philip Melanchthon, he improved his translation and he prepared to print it. And so it was published in September of 1522. Had you got a copy, Hot of the Press, that first edition, you'd have been quite staggered by its presentation. And you'd have said, well, it's a typographical masterpiece. What do I mean by that? Well, he did want a brilliant readable text. But he considered another element to be very important. For people learning to read or who couldn't read, illustrations were vital, he felt, or pictures within God's book. Now, he was no artist in a professional sense, and so he needed help in creating these reformed pictures that people could understand and would throw light on his translation. And he didn't have to look far to find the artist because there was already a local artist in the town of Wittenberg, one of the very best in Germany of the time, called Lucas Cranach, the elder. And so we have Cranach and we have Luther, and they worked together to produce pieces that wouldn't just aid the interpretation of the Bible, but also win converts to the Reformation cause. One of the famous paintings by Cranach, and we'll get back to this in a moment or two, in terms of the title, it was Law and Grace, or Law and Gospel. So when the first German New Testament is printed, it contained 117 woodcuts from Lucas Cranach's workshop. Over 3,000 copies of this September Bible were printed in Wittenberg. It was the largest quantity of books ever produced in the town, and they were just in time to take them along to the biggest book fair in the city of Frankfurt. This New Testament sold out quickly. In fact, it had to be reprinted in the month of December. Someone has said, pleasing Scripture in the hands of ordinary people, making it more inclusive of German dialects, generally meant that for the first time ordinary people could read for themselves or hear life-changing verses in their own language, such as John chapter 3 in the verse 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That September Testament in German was such a pivotal moment for the Reformation, for European history, 
for Bible translation. We need to mention it, and we need as well to celebrate it. 500 years ago, what kind of impact did it have? Well, some of you people have lived through the days when there was no internet, therefore no World Wide Web. Anybody looking for information today, where do they go? They go www. and off they go, and they put something into a Google search engine, and they've got millions of hits just at the touch of a button or two. Well, Luther's new Bible had the same kind of impact as the the bringing into being of this worldwide web. It was so groundbreaking. It formed as well a rallying point for the formation of a modern German language. And now that this Bible was going out in thousands of copies, and all of these people reading the Bible for themselves, the Reformation by now was unstoppable. And what Luther did in the German language, he encouraged others way beyond the border of the German Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called, to do as well. And so we have Bibles being produced then in Holland, in Sweden, in Iceland, in Denmark, influence felt in many other countries as well. In fact, William Tyndale, the English reformer, he had fled from England to the continent. Around the time that Luther was publishing this German New Testament, and it is felt that he met up with Luther in the town of Wittenberg, and they compared notes, and they thought about the scheme that they had in mind, and the plan for getting the word out, and Tyndale followed Luther's lead. And it meant that his translation into the English followed this kind of rhythm, and happy fluency of narration that Luther had done in the German language. And we have Tyndale, and he's starting to preach as well that great doctrine that Luther was preaching, justification by faith alone. So the first thing we're noting, the preparation for the Word, a path the people could walk, the production of the Word, a Bible the people could read. Then you've got the Bible in your hand. What do some people, what are they going to do with it? They're going to preach it. So we have the proclamation of the word, a message the people could hear. Martin Luther spent his life trying to understand the Scriptures, especially those parts that were so fundamental to the doctrine of salvation. He said that the study that he engaged in was like going on a journey full of surprising discoveries. And if you're not reading your Bible, you're missing out on this journey that Luther was so enthused by. He compared studying the Bible to time that you could spend in a forest. And so in 1533, he said, for a number of years, I have now annually read through the Bible twice. If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, I have tapped at all the branches, eager to know what was there, and what it had to offer. And again, in the same vein, he said, There is hardly a tree in this forest that I have not shaken and obtained apples or picked berries from. For 36 years, 1510, 
through to 1546. He preached the Bible in Wittenberg, first in the little chapel there, and then he went on to the great city church. Now, some people think we're expected to go to church a lot. Back then, there were no programs, there were no extras, there was only worship and preaching. Sunday morning, five o'clock in the morning, worship with a sermon on the epistle. Ten o'clock in the morning, a sermon on the gospel. An afternoon message on the Old Testament or the Catechism. You had another sermon on Monday, another one on Tuesday on the Catechism. Wednesdays on the Gospel of Matthew. Thursdays and Fridays on the Apostolic Letters. And then Saturday on John. How would you live with that? You see, the people had an appetite for the Word of God. For the preaching ministry of the church. It was said in a biography on Luther. Luther was one of the greatest preachers in the history of Christendom. Between 1510 and 1546, he preached approximately 3,000 sermons. Luther loved the role of proclaiming the gospel of grace. And he actually said, if I could today become king or emperor, I would not give up my office as preacher, sold out to the proclamation of the word. Then we come to a fourth thing. Not only the preparation for the word, a path the people could walk, the production of the word, a Bible the people could read, the proclamation of the word, a message the people could hear, but then fourthly, the principle in the word, a doctrine the people could understand. By translating the Bible out of Greek into German, Luther had put the Bible into the hands of millions of people. They could now read it or hear it read by someone who could read, and they could understand this German translation. But Luther wants them to know the, the hub and the kernel of gospel truth. He wants them to know the message of deliverance. And so he's preaching here on the law and the gospel. Other reformers you'll find in history, they kept on preaching on this fundamental line, the law and the gospel. Do you know what in time that emphasis has faded? And even some Christians today wouldn't have a notion if you were to say what our topic is going to be today, it will be the law and it will be the gospel and they'd be lost because they've never heard of that emphasis. What is it, this law and gospel? Well, I read, for example, in John 1 and verse 17, how the law was given by Moses, taking me into the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that the law and the gospel do not coalesce. It's not that one is contradictory to the other. They are not. They are complementary. The, the law and the gospel, they are not opposites. They work together. Luther said, the first duty of the gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. Why? Because the law will act as a schoolmaster and bring him to the everlasting life, which is in Jesus Christ. 
Well, how does that work? The law, the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, they've never been abandoned. They haven't passed into disuse. They were actually developed further by our Lord Jesus Christ on that famous sermon in the Mount. The law confronts you and me with the reality that everybody has sinned. All of us, without exception, we have sinned, and we have done it outwardly by our words and by our deeds. We have done it inwardly by our thoughts and by our motives. We are sinners before God, and the Lord, remember, it demands absolute perfection in order to be right with God, and it shows us you don't measure up. You're falling short, way short. You're unable by your own efforts to be perfect. So the law shows us how far short we have fallen. And that's where the gospel come in. The gospel comforts us with the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world, took our place. He came to fulfill the demands of the law and that we by faith, we have his perfection in when we trust in him. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day so that we can have our sins forgiven. On Calvary, he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. And in anybody's book, that has to be the most brilliant trade anybody could ever do. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. My sin led on him. He bears the penalty of the broken law that my sin had broken, and I in return receive his perfect righteousness on my account. You see, the truth of the matter is I'm a lawbreaker, and I can only be forgiven, only be counted righteous in God's sight, not by my own righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness being transferred to my account. Luther said, this is the good and happy news that Christ has paid for our sins. Again, he said, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. And that ties in exactly with what the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For he hath made him, that is God the Father, made God the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the law and the gospel. The law reveals her sin. The gospel shows the Savior from sin. Then we come to our final point, not only the preparation for the Word, a path the people could walk, the production of the Word, a Bible the people could read, the proclamation of the Word, a message the people could hear, the principle in the Word, a doctrine the people could understand, law and gospel, but the power of the Word, an impact the people could feel. If you were to take a holiday into the Wartburg Castle area of Germany, go up to that castle where Luther translated his New Testament out of Greek and into German, a guide may well tell you, now, here is the proof that Martin Luther threw an inkwell at the devil. And he'll point you to a wall and he'll say, that's the place. And tour guides would be known to take a bit of soot and rub the soot on the wall near the stove so that the visitors are getting an authentic experience and be able to trace where that inkwell apparently landed. 
But it's doubtful that Luther ever threw an inkwell at the devil. In his table talks, he said, I fought the devil with ink. What he meant by that was, when I translated the Bible into the German language, I fought the devil. The devil's not terrified by some kind of a flying inkwell, but he is afraid of God's Word reaching into our minds, captivating our hearts, bringing us to Christ. In one of his later sermons, Luther gave an example of how the preaching of the gospel had been the power in bringing about the Reformation. He said, I have opposed the indulgences and all the papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. We need to be convinced in this day and generation that this is still the solution. We can't go down the line of some kind of misheaded sophistication. It is the Scriptures alone that God will use. And Luther was 100% convinced that the Bible would overthrow and overcome the evil intentions and inventions of the devil. That hymn that we sang tonight, Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It shows his confidence in the power of the Word. And though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. It's the word that takes the devil's kingdom down. Again, in another verse in that same hymn, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body, they may kill God's truth, abideth still, his kingdom is forever. No explanation needed there. When every device fashioned to pull down God's Word is broken in pieces. God's reign will go on. And we need to remember this. In seriously thinking where we are going in life, we need to recall this. Let His truth free our lives. Praise God for His eternal kingdom. Make sure that we are a part of it because we need God's Word to have an impact upon our hearts, upon our minds, to affect the way that we live. So Luther encouraged, cast your sins from yourself and on to Christ. He meant simply, accept and act upon the promises of the gospel. Those that come to Christ, he will not turn aside. Confess your sin unto the Lord. Trust in the merits of Christ alone, not in anything that you're doing. Repent or turn from your sin unto Christ. And then, then you and I will celebrate the power of God's Word in our own souls.